Darkness is not inherently a bad thing. We're made of both dark and light. Our mind is able to perceive things in the night we cannot in the day and vice versa. They perform as a yin yang in our lives. In the second episode of Actual People, I dive into how fear and darkness are useful tools for conjuring the spirits of hope and creativity, and how for me, despair is the real monster under the bed. I touch upon witchcraft, tarot cards, post-industrial Manchester, England, true crime, and I get into the topic of fear versus the national despair that keeps us stuck. Welcome to Actual People, a podcast hosted by me, Chauncey Zulkin, dedicated to meaningful conversations about the evolving landscape of our lives and the power of our own creativity and imagination to make magic. Fear can be a very positive thing when it's used the right way. When you don't let it control you, but you use it as a tool and you stand in the face of fear by daring it staring it to overwhelm you and say, come at me. You have to challenge it. I'm thinking about that a lot lately because the project I'm doing right now, having a podcast is all about facing fears, pulling different levers, whatever's inside of me and seeing what should be out there, what I might not want to have out there, but I'm putting out there anyway. This is an experiment. I'm facing my fears and playing with fears, playing out your fears is a way of learning, is a way of transcending them. We are always drawn to explore the things that we're afraid of, that hold the most power over our imagination, things that feel forbidden or dismantle our sense of peace in order to conquer it. Darwin did an experiment where he placed a box of snakes in a room full of monkeys. Apparently, monkeys are deathly afraid of snakes, but the monkeys would come up to the box, open it up, see the snakes slithering around, slam the box shut and scuttle away. And then another monkey would come up, do the same thing, and so on and so forth. Having morbid curiosity or any sort of fascination with danger is an evolutionary trait. It has a name. It's actually called predator inspection. And it gives animals and us the opportunity to practice dealing with danger from a safe space. Essentially, we want to understand what is unknown, to turn some kind of light on in the dark, And sometimes that light is just a glow, nothing harsh, maybe a halo, maybe it's candlelight to illuminate what is hidden. We want to be able to see through something, illuminate something without extinguishing the darkness completely. Darkness is not inherently a bad thing. We're made of both dark and light. Our mind is able to behave in ways in the dark and perceive things in the night we cannot in the day and vice versa. They perform as a yin yang in our lives. As a tween, I was drawn to the paranormal and the occult. I'm going to take a sip of my coffee. Contrary to popular belief, occult, O-C-C-U-L-T, not cult. The occult, it doesn't mean black magic or evil. It literally just means hidden. And the occult encompasses the study of all things supernatural and metaphysical, like tarot, astrology, and so on. As of late, witches have come back in vogue. The hashtag witch talk on TikTok has gotten over 40 billion views and witchcraft has become a multi-billion dollar business. My first interest in the supernatural might have come from reading Lois Duncan in the fourth grade. Lois Duncan's books were chock full of supernatural references. The characters had familiars like a cat that would protect their intuitive master and assist with their magic. 
They also contained the practice of astral projection, which allowed the practitioner to have an intentional out-of-body experience and travel through the astral plane between life and death, leaving the body behind. Her book sparked that desire to delve into life's mysteries at a young age, and Supernatural YA has never abated in its popularity. As kids, we all played a game, especially girls, I don't know about boys, but at sleepover parties, we played a game called Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board, where you gathered around and everybody would repeat the incantation, light as a feather, stiff as a board, light as a feather, stiff as a board all sliding their fingers under this one little girl that was lying as straight as possible. And then they would start to lift the body, which would miraculously just rise up. It would be easy to lift this body with just two fingers per person. But really, it was just an expression of the physics of evenly distributed weight and 10-year-old enthusiasm. But it felt spooky and it tapped into that sense of mystery and questions about life beyond the threshold of what we could perceive. Another game was Bloody Mary, seeing a spooky female figure in the mirror, an optical illusion. Then there was the Ouija board, which proves the power of focused energy. Everybody would focus on one thing, conjuring spirits from the dead. The board would move on its own. And some people believe that it calls up spirits, but science says it's the ideal motor effect small unconscious motor movements that are based on somebody's expectations because of suggestibility. But still, it shows the power of what concentrated focus can do. Statista published the statistic that 68% of 18 to 29-year-olds found horror movies very or somewhat favorable. Since 1995, horror has more than doubled its market share in the U.S. and Canada. As young kids, we are introduced to darkness in a slightly cartoonish or fantastical way. First with figures like Gargamel and the Smurfs or the Wicked Witch. And then Harry Potter's He Who Must Not Be Named. I love He Who Must Not Be Named because it embodies fears that must not be named. Ideas or things that might harm us or ones we simply don't understand. Even good and beautiful sides of ourselves can be cloaked in darkness. Discerning what we should be afraid of and what we should embrace is part of growing up. It's part of being brave and it's part of learning discretion and restraint. We play with fear through film and books and music, through allegory. As of late, the dark and light play out through our society's obsession with true crime. An article I read on the BBC Science website said that it's in our nature to be highly attuned to criminal misdemeanors. We instinctively want to discover the who, what, where, why, when. So can find out what makes criminals tick to better protect ourselves and our kin. Humans are prone to negative bias and negative potency, as it's called, as a way to learn lessons. We play with darkness in the comfort of safe spaces. My mother told me when she was young, she'd watch really scary movies and then crawl into bed with her mom and put her back to her so she could think about the scary movie without restraint because her mother was there to protect her so she could indulge these thoughts of fear. Teenagers dip their toe in the border between life and death and self-destruction pretty easily because they're in a period of testing, testing the world around them, feeling like they're invincible. You can go on to relegate destruction to small manageable bits of your life, or you can let the dark take over. Darkness can be mystery and discovery of hidden things, and darkness can be destruction. You don't always want to know what's behind door number one. 
For me, I've always been both terrified and drawn to the topic of drug addiction and its accompanying despair and the hopelessness of it. It's so awful and so harrowing to me that like a detective, I want to figure it out and resolve it in my mind. I tend to intellectualize things that I can't control. My mind leans towards idealism and utopia. I try to fix society in my head and make order of things. Like I think, okay, if this was like this or if this was like that, I'm trying to resolve things. And that's a lot of what my writing does. I've written a lot of speculative fiction that no one has seen where I'm trying to create a utopian world and solve society's ills. In most of our world, we're solving some sort of problem. I have this fear of drug addiction. It might be the result of chaotic and narcissistic parents where in some ways there was a lot of dynamic fruitful conversations around the dinner table, juxtaposed with a lot of recklessness and self-indulgent disregard for our feelings. It was not a, a feeling of putting the kids first, but more like we were coming along for the ride. The addiction crises, I say crises because there are multiple that have popped up consecutively, exponentially, not just to drugs, but to social media, to extremism. If you turn on any streaming service, most of what you're going to get is something that's violent or terrifying, horrible, base. The horrors of humanity, the underbelly of society, something, you know, super dark, obnoxious, hyperbolic levels of wealth, hyperbolic levels of violence and mayhem and murder. That is what we're watching. If you look at the breakdown of what is coming out, and somebody who used to work for one of the streaming services in a conversation told me that it's really hard to find good comedy. After this podcast, go and look at your streaming service, how many new comedy movies are coming out compared to how much is coming out that is based on violence and crime or horror. It's really interesting to look at. Scary movies are a great way to work through pain. I love something that has to do with multi-generational trauma like The Haunting of Hill House and the other work of Mike Flanagan, the director of The Haunting of Hill House, or the psychological horror that Jordan Peele has put out in the last decade that acts as cultural criticism and helps us process our deep-seated fears in, in ways that feel constructive and revelatory. I love a great murder mystery because it's a puzzle. I love true crime, but there has to be a path to mastery. It has to feel like you have agency and control and that you're learning something. If there's hopelessness and despair, it makes me actually kind of angry. There was a movie called Last Exit to Brooklyn that my high school boyfriend made me watch. And I'm not even going to mention on this podcast things that happen in that, but there is so much despair and hopelessness in that movie that I felt like him pushing me to watch the movie was an act of violence in and of itself. Another filmmaker I absolutely despise is Lars von Trier. Every movie he puts out is a, an act of violence towards his audience. Dancer in the, the Dark, Antichrist. Oh, uh, I hate him. Oh, Breaking the Waves. Okay. There is no hope for a Lars von Trier character. They are betrayed, mutilated, humiliated. It's just awful. This guy has such a low opinion of humanity. 
I think frightening or scary art, for me, it needs to have some sort of path to mastery. If it's a puzzle, I want to be able to solve it. I want to be able to come away stronger or inspired or with even a little tiny ember of hope or agency. You'll never catch me watching a movie that stares right in the face of somebody in the throes of addiction. I never watched Train Spotting. Has that famous toilet scene where Ian McGregor is diving all the way into a toilet to get his fix. I'm interested in looking at fear, but not despair. Fear is something you can face and overcome, where despair sits in that place of hopelessness and lingers there. You know what I love? I love revenge flicks. I love the old boy trilogy. I love ghost stories. I love a good crime thriller. A drug overdose is not an allegory. Intellectually, I will hunt down information about the opioid crisis and examine it to understand what is going on with society. How bad are we doing? We all know there's a wound that's just festering in society. There's so much heartache and pain and alienation. The zombie movie is an exploration of the stripping away of the consciousness and the soul. And one of the ways it's been made visible is through this spiraling drug epidemic. Even when I was young, I was terrified of hard drugs. The idea of taking hard drugs is just unfathomable to me. I once ran and hid from a junkie on Fifth Avenue. For several blocks, there was this junkie just behind me by half a block. And no matter where I went, he seemed to be there. I thought he was following me and I was terrified. And I ran into this California pizza kitchen on Fifth Avenue and hid from him. I mean, my heart was pounding. I was actually scared. Maybe that terror and curiosity stems from losing my most hilarious and symbiotic friendship when I was 25 to crack. We hadn't spent real time together since midway through high school, but she's the friend that I laughed with the most, had the most inside jokes with. And she started doing coke and eventually she started, she did crack and, and we lost her. But no, it's before that I, I grew up in Miami in the 80s. I was friends with the kids of members of the Colombian cartel in, in high school. And who had some interesting, scary stories about their childhood growing up with these parents. Even before that, my father had parties in the 80s. And though I was there and somehow never saw anyone actually doing anything, I knew the drugs were there and there was evidence. I really liked one guy that came around for a party. We talked a lot. And then someone told me he was addicted to heroin. And I was so young, I might have been 11 years old, but I knew what it was because I had seen Lady Sings the Blues, which is a movie about Billie Holiday with Diana Ross playing Billie Holiday. And I was way too young to watch it. Um, but like the Gen X stereotype, no one stopped me from watching this movie, but it completely traumatized me. I, could, I, I would never in a million years let my 10-year-olds watch something like that. But I just had to deal with what I'd seen, you know? And I knew this woman had a sickness and I didn't, I wanted to have no part of it. It really disturbed me. Um, so when someone came back with a pack of cigarettes and handed them to them, I, I intercepted the cigarettes and I threw them into the fireplace. 
and I said, to try to save him from his addiction to cigarettes. I thought it was a start. Um, and I and I was going to a very prim Episcopalian day school, and I had a mortal fear that my friends would find out my father smoked pot. Because my father did. He didn't do hard drugs, but he smoked pot every day, which made him not completely available for father duty. He was out of it a lot of the time, you know, in the pothead way of being out of it that people think is so funny. I never really thought it was that funny. I just remembered when I was a kid in school and sleeping in the guest room of my dad's house and finding little vials and spoons in the drawer of the guest room. I once found a really beautiful, heavy gold chainmail dress. It was a very Paco Rabanne, 80s Paco Rabanne. It conjured up this sad, chaotic glamour. I never understood why my peers thought Coke was exciting and cool. It seemed like the saddest, scariest thing in the world. One of my father's girlfriends later became famous for writing The Dark Side of a Light Chaser. She was friends with Deepak Chopra. She went on Oprah. But in her 20s, she spent time shivering on the couch. My dad footed the bill to send her to rehab. In my early 20s, she found me again and handed me a stack of self-help books in case I ever decided to go her route. I left the books in her car, said I didn't want them. And I never spoke to her again. I didn't want to have anything to do with addicts or recovery. It all just freaked me out. I had such disdain for the cavalier attitude people had toward drugs since I knew what it could do. I never felt flippant about it. I felt like it came from privilege to be flippant about it. I think that's part of the reason why I gravitated toward the hip-hop scene. Nobody was doing lines of coke in the bathroom. They were drinking 40s and smoking blunts. It was at the white people parties that the hard drugs were being done. And I know hip-hop changed drastically in later generations with scissor, the codeine and cough syrup mix. The New York Times ran a story about gas station heroin the other day, those little vials of God knows what killing people. I watch a slew of movies now about the Sackler family and the seeds of the opioid crisis, which is different in nature in that it made people who legitimately needed pain medication become addicts and accelerated this problem and moved it into new populations. All of this is inextricably linked to the despair and pain and the social wound we're experiencing as a culture. It's all one big tangled tear. Joblessness, lack of place in society, the aimlessness of modern life, the lack of resources. Now there are new drugs that are more lethal than fentanyl circulating globally, and they're on the rise. We're sleeping in a bed we made or saw made before us by people in power, and it's largely being left unaddressed. I discovered that the singer Jelly Roll, who went from being a rapper to being a country singer, he recently made this plea to Congress to pass an anti-fentanyl trafficking bill. And I listened to his speech to Congress, and it was really touching. There was this voice of reason and this face-tattooed large guy. It sort of stunned me. Directly quoting the bill from the government site, this bill that he wants to pass, says in 2021, nearly 107,000 Americans died from an overdose, and 65% of overdose deaths were caused by fentanyl. Last year, the Drug Enforcement Administration seized over 379 million deadly doses of fentanyl, enough to supply a lethal dose to every American. Oh, my God. And then there was another thing about it's like a plane going down every single day. He mentions that. He's from Tennessee. He talks about all the people who've died around him in his community. 
and he points out that the country's reaction to crack epidemic and the opioid epidemic were both reactionary, not proactive, and he begs Congress to do something now about fentanyl and whatever else is coming down the pike. And I watched part of a Hulu documentary, and he says in his music, he's just documenting what he knows. Music has always healed in times of despair. After the Industrial Revolution in England, Manchester was the first big industrial city, and All this amazing music came out of Manchester. The industrial landscape was the backdrop to some of the greatest music of all time, including New Order, Joy Division, The Smiths. The same musical revolution came out of Detroit and the crumbling of the auto industry. Can we channel that despair and transform it into joy? Can we use our intellect and a sense of wonder about the unknown to combat despair. Fear and mystery are ways for us to explore what we do not understand and to gain some sense of agency and control over those things. We have a lot of pain and displacement in this country. People can't afford housing. Our roles in society are up in the air. There is no clear pathway through life anymore. Higher education is up for debate. Corporate life is not the panacea that we once thought it was. I was reading a New York Times article this morning. There was an interview with a guy named Christopher Bader, and he's a professor of sociology, and he does this report every year called the Survey of American Fears. He said our number one fear was uncertainty. Uncertainty is what plagues us, and we are in a really uncertain time. If you go into any bookshop, There's a section dedicated to tarot or a table dedicated to tarot. Every cool indie shop has tarot with beautiful artwork and at least five or six different kinds of cards. We are looking for tools and ways to work out our big fears. People use the archetypal images on tarot to reflect on their own life and their own narrative. We use tarot and horror movies and mysteries to create structure, like a lattice to help us climb out of despair and repave our roads, retell our stories, while the systems catch up with reality. We cannot lose that experimental beginner mindset that allows us to expand, especially when we have to completely rethink the way we live, how we're going to fix huge problems. We haven't quite figured out systems for healthcare, finance, and housing to accommodate all these new changes. Real life works way more slowly than a set piece in a film, you know, an action sequence. All of these people lost to drugs. What if they were here to explore the universe and discover themselves before they erased themselves and lost their agency? What if we could stave off the zombie apocalypse? When my kids were born, I marveled at the fact that they had not been indoctrinated into anything. No conventions, no manners, no assumptions, no knowledge of celebrity or the trappings of money, no understanding of society and social norms and anxieties, yet they were completely a blank slate. And everything that they had inside of them, just unfettered by the experiential. It's all nature, and it's not yet nurture. They're not nurtured by any of the sins of society. They're not nurtured by capitalism. They're not nurtured by any of our conventions. They're not nurtured by religion. They're not cultivated. They are uncultivated. And in that pristine state, they are actually probably closer to a deeper understanding of the universe, which we unlearn over time. 
So I think it's really important to be presented with things that are scary, things that um, help us unlock puzzles, things that are both scientific and rational, as well as metaphysical, supernatural, and transcendental. Whenever I meditate, I picture some random dot in the universe, a floating bit of debris just there in the cosmos. I put myself there next to that piece of dust that we cannot imagine beyond the Earth's atmosphere. We don't even know what death is, but we're drawn to the idea of it as a sudden stop and the impossibility of losing our soul to the ether. There are these persistent allegories in religion and spiritual practice that allow us to find some kind of answer for what we have no answer for. As you get older, you are less interested in indulging that kind of emo pathos that you play with a lot as a young kid. You hold dear the people that you love and the things that you care about and you honor at them. There is wisdom in every stage. I hope that you found this helpful and that it wasn't too rambling. You know, I'm just getting my wheels turning here. And this episode had nothing to do with any of the episodes I'd already planned. I've interviewed two people. I have an, a really exciting interview subject coming up soon. I don't want to announce it yet. And I'm going to be talking a lot about creativity, imagination, the creative industries, and where we're headed. So stay tuned. And I hope you enjoy the ride as I figure out what I'm doing. You've been listening to Actual People. This show is written, directed, and executive produced by me, your host, Chauncey Zalkin. Show sound designed by Eric Aaron. Click on the link below to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And don't forget to leave a review. I'll be sharing my favorites. Actual People is available wherever you get your podcasts. You can find our socials and all links to deeper dives into these topics at chaunceyzalkin.com and on my substack at chaunceyzalkin.substack.com.